This is David Conkle, author of the horror game book, The Castle of Blackwood Moors. And you are listening to Gaming BS. Enjoy. Episode 88 of Gaming NBS, sponsored by GameholeCon, a tabletop gaming convention occurring in Madison, Wisconsin this November. Get your ass to GameholeCon and visit www.gameholecon.com for more information. All right, let's get this thing off now. This week we are talking collecting. Yes, we are absolutely going to talk collecting. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. Welcome back, folks. Welcome and, to the show. And we have a guest, and we're going to have him brought in right at the beginning. We have Alex Kammer. And we're at the game hole, so he's not in the studio. We are at the game hole. Yes, we are at the game hole, which is why things might not be quite as smooth as they should be. Oh, as smooth as a baby's bottom, <laughs> Brett. Nice. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, it's uh, I appreciate it, and uh, welcome to the game hole. So Alex is not only the the game hole con guy that we that we bring up periodically, but Alex is also a premier collector, probably the most. Um, uh, what do I see? Fecund <laughs> collector? I know he's all over it. I mean, when I talk about guys I know who are collecting stuff or whatever, Alex has more of the good stuff than anybody else I know. So I appreciate that. <clears throat> yeah, it's a it gets it's a small group when you're talking about uh, vintage TSR from OD and D through one E and into two E. That's where you know people my age in their mid forties they care about this stuff, uh, and there are probably. Uh, 10 or so collectors worldwide that are well known for having premium collections of all the really the rares uh and the rares are cool and they are rare and they're expensive um but i'm you know it's taken a lot, long time to assemble the stuff i have and uh i'm looking forward to chatting with you guys about it and uh, uh about you know just collecting in general Cool. Sweet. Sweet, sweet. Yeah. So announcements first. Um, let's see here. A short announcement just on the speaking of gaming conventions. I had another <coughs> excuse me, playing session with my Evercon crew this last weekend. It looks like things are in pretty full swing there. Um, I'll be doing the call out for game masters and all that good stuff coming shortly. We'll be hitting people through the old social media uh, airwaves, trying to make sure we've got people signed up, ready to come run games, people play games. And that'll be January of next year. Um, other than that, I don't have anything new and improved. Alex, is there anything anything new in the game hole sphere that we should talk yes. about for for game hole con? Yeah, I mean uh, <clears throat> that's a a big subject in of itself. But yeah, let's at least touch on it. Um, I just had a meeting this week with uh, the great John Kavalik, who, uh, as you guys know, is the artist who does all the Munchkin work and many other games. Uh, he is. We're going to be announcing this week. You'll get the scoop here <clears throat> that uh, Dorkstock his show uh that used to be at RockCon is going to be returning dorkstock is going to return this year at GameholeCon. nice so there'll be a full track of dorkstock events at GameholeCon this year which is great john's a great guy and uh so it'll be munchkinny riffic and a bunch of other steve jackson game stuff that uh he's going to be putting on and and it's also they'll have their dedicated their own <clears throat> excuse me dedicated uh open uh, play area too for Dorkstock, which is cool. Very cool. Last year he was a little under the weather. Did, was it like gall surgery or gallstones or something <laughs> yeah, horrible? Yeah, exactly, exactly. He had surgery, I think Thursday before GameholeCon, and he's still staggering around. So he was he got the red badge of courage for a GameholeCon last year. That was pretty cool. And uh, let's see beyond that, um, <clears throat> we have a bunch of guests that have been added. Um, you know that you could go to the site and look at that. I mean, we've over forty guests. My guys constantly make fun of me for my recklessness with respect to our budget. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say that. It's insane. It's just such poor judgment, but it's it's fun, and uh, we've got great guests. Um, Alex collects guests the same way he collects <clears throat> old-school TSR modules. So I, there, there's a lot of them. I suppose. I just want... I just uh, enjoy hanging out with these people. I know our attendees do, and uh, I want for all these great um, gaming personalities to come and see the Midwest see gamehole con and to see how uh we can run a show and because i think we we do it well and uh so far it's worked it's been great because these people leave and say wow gamehole con's a legit show it's you know it's run well and it's fun and they've got great attendees everyone talks about how great our attendees are they uh they're just universal in you know i ran games at gamehole con and man did i have good gamers and that's i'm really proud of that that we don't have our gamers are legit gamers people who come to gamehole con 
come to play games and their if whatever their their experience level uh, from beginner to very experienced they're just nice people and they want to learn and they want to play and they want to you know play these great games uh, so that's been very cool so our guests really appreciate that um, so beyond that the other I guess big thing that's recently that we did is to rework our game design awards uh, they're called the Rodneys. Uh, and uh, I think you had you did a little blurb on that, and I yeah, appreciate we did. that, guys. Yep, absolutely. Uh, we have three tracks now. In addition to just the board game design, the RPG design, we have a dedicated dungeon crawl classic design oh, award nice. track, and that is because Joe Goodman uh, of DC of uh, Goodman Games has been nice enough, kind enough to offer to publish the winner of the RPG contest and the winner of the DCC. Uh, adventure contest which is pretty awesome in, it's very awesome in addition to the board game which the game crafter is going to handle so nice. you, you, if you win you get a hundred dollars cash you get a great statuette um and you get published i mean that's pretty sweet so we're sweet. excited about that and we all streamlined the process made it a lot easier so you just have to email your submissions to us you don't have to it's just that simple you just have to set us pdf and we have and we've got great gut judges you know for the general rpg it's uh chris perkins uh, Alan Hammock and Chris Clark. I mean, so it's too got, bad you couldn't get anybody with any name recognition. That'd be that'd <laughs> yeah, be nicer exactly. if we could find somebody. Exactly. <laughs> that exactly. Perkins guy. I don't. I don't take. I don't get him. Yeah. Cool. A- Alan Hammock. I mean, the guy who edited the DM's guide. Yeah. <laughs> you know? If only. If only he yeah. knew a thing or two. No, yeah. that's awesome. So yeah. Anyway, th- I appreciate you giving me a chance to pr- prattle on about GameholeCon, which I will do at ad nauseum if, if allowed. So there you go. <laughs> Shall we move on? Yeah. You I ready? suppose we can do. It. Yeah. Let's get into random encounter. Let's do it. All right, so we have. What do you want to start? Or you want me? To I'll go? start. I'll read the first one. All right. Um, excuse me. Andy Hall emailed us and said, "Hey there, Brett and Sean. I ended up uh, playing a fair share of Savage Worlds on a virtual tabletop using Roll Twenty, and I use a GM screen. Why not, eh? I figured that as a player, I better know the system and have my shit together so that I can do uh, my bit to keep the action going. A screen helps me. If a GM uh, asks if anyone knows a rule, I'm in a good position to help. Using a screen as a player comes in with a big fat caveat." As a player, you have to be damn careful not to cross the line and offer up rules to the GM whenever you see fit. As a player, you may not see the line, but the GM sees the line. Cross it at your peril. Good gaming to you, comrades. Andy Hall. Roxville Rooster. Yes, he's the Roxville Rooster he's, from iTunes. He's the one, yeah, that left us at a review last, last time. And I mentioned that when we talked about game screens, how um, when you were running 5e for us, I actually had the 5e screen handy because I wanted some of the reference material in it around like conditions. Because yeah. I knew we were going to get into questions around what happens if you're blinded, staggered, or stunned, or under fear, or something, and that was that was handy to use. So I could definitely see that from a player's perspective, having that handy. Alex, do you let people? Would you let your players have a GM screen at the table, like even laid out flat for a reference? Let I suppose I guess <laughs> I guess um, <laughs> how how yeah, iron handed yeah, are no, you? No, I'm not. I mean, if, I, I've never had a player in all the years uh, I've run have a have an actual screen, even though. Second edition, of course, famously published player screens, screens and we have I have a bunch of them here, and if you ever want to see them, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, no, uh, I, I've never even had anyone ask. They have that stuff usually. If it's uh, enough of a concern, it makes it to a multi-page sheet, you know. But I no, I don't have a problem with it. It'd be, it'd be. I guess it'd be fine. I, I would. I'd want to try it first. I guess <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. Next one's yours, sir. All right, Steve Orlick emails us. Hello, B and S. I've listened to most of your episodes, but didn't want to write in until I caught up. Now that I have, I'll put in my two cents on episode 86, Secret Conversations. Feel free to give me change. You guys made a lot of valid points about whether it's good or not to have those secret convos. I find in my campaign that I run kind of down the middle. I will bring people out of the room to impart information to help create a surprise moment later. I have one character who is regaining memories while recovering from amnesia and another character who receives visions. Those two will be fed those things away from the table, but I make sure to only make it a minute or two. I don't want to leave everyone else hanging and getting bored at the table. Any other situations like a character having a private chat with an NPC happen at the table and I'll trust the players not to meta. If I see them start metagaming with that kind of thing, I'll gently remind them that their characters don't know that stuff. That's usually enough. If not, a temporary penalty might be enforced, like a minus two int check for a little while, or minus int, actually. Kind of like dropping temporary blindness on a character when the player peeks over the screen or looks in the monster manual. Anyway, my way has been working fairly well for my group. I 
think with just about every topic you guys have covered, I seem to trod the middle ground. Love the podcast. Keep the BS coming. Steve Orlick. Sean, you must like the idea of smacking players with penalties and other random stick like Well, that, yeah, right? they're very soft. Very soft. Yes, I think harder, ta- more tangible things. Like a boffer LARP weapon to whack him in the head with? That's a, probably a good start for good those start. that are not used to my DMing style. But after that... After that, then it's up to two by fours and baseball bats. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, but so I think yeah, you start out with you know he, like Steve here. You know he starts out easy. Works him and escalate it. Escalates. I, but I think it's conditioning. <laughs> it's conditioning. It's conditioning right? with players. I think Steve's point though is kind of being down the middle. I honestly think a lot of gamers tend to. There's always extremes of any of anything, and a lot of people tend to do play a lot of things down the middle where you have. You could be very secretive where all conversations are off the table and nothing else, nothing happens in public and other people take it all the other way and all conversations happen at the table. And I think a lot of people probably do it and what makes the most sense at the time if they want to split it up for that moment just for a little impact of something different. Alex, at your table, do do you guys walk away from the table to have private conversations? or That is 100% driven by what we're playing and what the... The, what the situation is so uh sidebars are uh, can be fun because you can pull someone aside and say hey i you know you know this no one else knows this you do do x x y and z uh to help the narrative um the we had a we <laughs> we've had to go too far with post-it notes where <laughs> everyone's <laughs> passing post-it notes to each other and to the dm and it's usually some side of machinations to screw other players over of course that's usually what so we actually, I finally had moratorium on no post-its. So no more fucking post-it notes because it was getting out of hand. You know, they're just, you're, everyone's like reaching around the screen trying to hand me stuff. I'm like, no, that's good. We're, we're just not doing that anymore. Um, and, but, but you know, and but we, we rotate DMs in the game hole here. And so uh, some people, uh, you know, everyone's a little different about it. Uh, but yeah, I think a sidebar, I think you're, you're the, the uh, you know, the, the guy who wrote in here has a great point. If it's, as long as it's not too long and you're not boring people with, you know, a 10-minute conversation in the hallway – yeah, no, I think it's cool, and uh, uh, it's a good way to to uh, to help the narr- the narration of the game once in a while. Cool. I think uh, I think you should take all those post-it notes when you're the DM and put them like, okay, I got it, and just keep throwing them in a little hat. And then when you're gonna <laughs> when you're gonna throw notes back, just pick in the hat, throw it, <laughs> throw yeah, it yeah, exactly. randomly, at or the put player. them up on a whiteboard behind you, type yeah. of thing, so everybody can see them. Yeah, yeah. Nice. hold another dimension in the game. <laughs> yeah. All right, so the next one we got Michael Phillips on G Plus. He commented said, "I, I love the idea of G." DM screens, but in practice, I don't use them for the same reasons Brett listed. Well, clearly, he's a he's a smart man, understands wisdom when he hears it, so that makes me feel good. He I'm, doesn't use them. He doesn't. I, neither do I. Oh, I see. Okay. See, he's he's siding with me, so this is good. I remember when Everon uh, screen came out, it was in landscape instead of portrait. It was as close to usable as I'd ever seen. Uh, since then, I've seen CD case size half screens, but... These days, I buy screens mostly for, as learning tools for the game systems. And if I use them at the table, as I lay them flat, <clears throat> excuse me, as a quick reference. In the late 2E days, 2E days, there were D&D player kits, as Alex alluded to, that came with specific screens for the players. I never actually owned them. Dungeon World benefits from a GM screen, absolutely, but there are about six to eight pages of GM-relevant material. It is great to have on hand at all times. And right now, I'm using uh, sheets of paper in a stack, but if I were able... Uh, if I was at a table big enough uh, to use a screen to actually use the um, uh, offish uh, grief. What does it say? <clears throat> I don't know what that says. Um, but he'd use the uh, Dungeon World screen. I think that's. I think it might be a typo there. If I was at a table big enough to use a screen, I'd, I'd actually use the official. I official. official Thank you. Oh, good God. I can't. Yeah. Official yeah. Dungeon World screen. Yeah. Use the Dungeon World monster cards and a personalized version of the GM reference sheets. Well, question. He he keep hearing about gaming cafes. Do you know if Madison has any? So I'm not aware of a gaming cafe in Madison. Did we have one for a while? I went back to Michael and, and let him know we did have one in Middleton, right where, where okay. Alex is living. I think it lasted all of maybe three or six months. I don't even know. I, maybe six months. It was a very ambitious project. It wasn't very um, well thought out. <laughs> well thought out and too much space. And that's a whole other subject is how to fail at restaurants. And that was a classic example. Uh, did you know them? Did you know who was? No, I didn't. I just heard of them. And I, I, I know someone who did know them. And I, uh, the, this, yeah, the story was there was a, a, a guy with a, a, a fairly large checkbook and he trusted another guy to put this together for him. And guy B went on kind of a spending spree and was aggressive in space and in the way they built the restaurant out. 
without really doing a market survey to see if any that would be supported by the community. You know, we have fortunately what six game stores in town, and to plunk another one in, you know, willy nilly, one pretty close to a really popular one. Um, Not a good move. No, no, especially unless you're going to be really, you're going to kick ass at food or coffee, and they didn't really do either. They're sort of meh on both. Oh, uh, not and good. So that was a risk. Did you go there when it was? I did. I yeah. went a couple times, and it was it was cool, but it was always dead. It was just nothing going on. It was neat because you know I'd go with the fam, and you could pick a game out and order food and play the game, and uh, you know, but they and they had a pretty good game inventory, uh, you know, stuff retail, but no one ever bought it. Um, and in fact, when they <laughs> when they uh, when they failed ultimately, um, I inherited their uh, their entire demo uh, section. So I got something like 300 board games. Oh my they're, god! They're essentially untouched. Yeah, they're in storage. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. So yeah, there's, there's the start of a games library. Nice. Yeah. So no, we don't have a true games cafe, gaming cafe here in town. Um, there's some talk of those guys at Geeks Mania want to open a cafe too, but I, you know, I'm. I've talked to them a couple times that I've strongly encouraged them not to. You know, the video games is enough. Don't try to do food when you don't know how to do food. But I know Robin Laws has talked about it, I believe, in Toronto where he's at. There's been a number of them have sprung up, and he was kind of shocked that they were actually seemed to be doing pretty well. But that again, I don't know that market space. I'm not in yeah. Toronto, so I don't know what that market space looks like. <laughs> so my hope is that they're doing well because somebody mm-hmm. actually did their market research and tried to figure out what the hell they could actually pull off. A couple good ones in Seattle, I know. I know there's one in Denver that's well-known, uh, but yeah, none here, unfortunately. So Misty, Misty did. I remember when they were over on Stoughton Road here in Madison, not that anybody online that may be listening to this knows. There's a handful of Madison folks, but they had put in pizza ovens. But in order to do that, they had to revamp their entire counter system because they were serving food. And in order to get a license, you had to have like two, yeah, three there's sinks. Rules and re- there's rules and regulations yeah. on serving food. So it's not it's not any easy task. It's not like, hey, we'll just throw in a pizza oven and start feeding people. And then when the city comes in. We've talked about this before when it comes to any business endeavor. <clears throat> just because you're a gamer doesn't mean you know, you know how to run a gaming store. and just be about? <laughs> there's, there's, there's you play D&D, there's an economy, there's goal pieces. It's there, the same thing. I, I, I don't understand. All right. Before we before the three of us devolve, <laughs> yeah. devolve into railing on bad gaming stores, next one, Sean, read it up. All right. Alex, you want to read this one? Uh, is this uh, Sir, Sir John, John Wallace? Yeah. yeah, Sir John Wallace. Josh. Josh, Josh Sir Wallace. Josh Sir Wallace. Uh, writes, love episode 87. I wanted to share the one place where I think secret dice are essential. My context is D&D, but it applies elsewhere. Have you ever thrown a ball and immediately realized it was a terrible throw even before you saw the ball veering towards the gutter? For some tasks, a character can get immediate feedback and they know right away whether their sword swing was good or bad. Other tasks don't have this. For those, I think it's important to hide the dice results so the players and characters don't know whether success or failure was a result of skill or luck. This will avoid zany meta situations like rolling poorly on search, then trying again. The player knows the die roll is bad, but the character shouldn't. In these cases, I roll for the players behind my screen. Love the podcast. See you at Gamehole Con. All right. This is my favorite note so far. <laughs> Look at that, right? I love Josh. Good job, buddy. <laughs> so um, what I, Josh is talking about in the last <clears> one, this is when we talk about GM screens, and one of the things that people bring up with them is like, hey, behind the screen, I can roll those private secret dice. Mm-hmm. So when the players are doing those things, he's saying that whole concept of I'll roll your search check for you. And I know there was a push for that, I think, back in the day. And some of the D and D, oh, the old D and D, how to be a better game master and lose weight or whatever it was. I don't know if that's still published. Um, published. Um, what do I want to say? Uh, advice or not? But I, I think the the uh, the one that strikes me as the secret role is the uh, classic D and D rolling for traps. You know? Yeah, search for traps. You know, and I now don't use the screen simply because. Sean has introduced me to the standing uh, standing desk, the table desk. Yeah. And so I can roll those up high, and I can still keep them secret uh, without uh, uh, without having to use a screen. So I, so I completely agree that there are times and places for secret rolls um, just to avoid, you know, if uh, – it just – exactly, it just cuts down meta play. I have had that before, especially when playing with the kids. And you get it with adults, too. I'll play with my kids when I play that – at Evercon with some of the high school age kids and stuff. When someone's like, okay, roll to see if you find something. They roll, and they roll a one. Oh, my God, I didn't find anything. Then the table goes, oh, but we have to pretend we don't know that. So sometimes taking that away. And I know sometimes we, we've talked about this before where we oftentimes like to put the die roll in the player's hands. 
But when you're talking D&D and something like that is secretive, you know, the nature of that game, kind of to our private conversation perspective, the nature of the game, when something is secret, it does seem to make sense that the game master have that in their hand. Well, well you know, for example, a player wants to check a door for traps. Uh, and if they roll and they roll a 19, you say no traps. Well, they're pretty damn sure there are no traps. Oh, yeah. But if I roll it and say no traps, and they say, oh, everyone's sphincters are tightening because they don't know what the answer <laughs> is. And sure. that's really the point, you know? And it does take more, it's more work on the DM's part, but, you know, that's that's the thing, man. I think traps should be a, a, a dramatic moment, you know? It shouldn't be, or at least the fear of traps should always be present. And when they, of course, roll high and you say, nope, then, you know. All on the, then the shoulder to the door and kick that bitch open. That's what happens, you know? And you can, I mean, even if you take it to like a Call of Cthulhu game, when you're looking for something, you're searching a room, you're tearing into something, you're trying to find something, um, what is this, what is that? And you're trying to figure out, you know, where the magic spell is or where the artifact's hidden. A lot of times the old cultists, they hide, they hide shit everywhere. So when you're tearing through the room and you're like, do I find anything? You get the die roll behind the screen or in secret in some way, then you're not necessarily certain is the keeper giving me... Is the keeper telling me I don't find it because it's really not there, or did I just botch my my skill roll? I can see value in that. Sean, what do you think? I was distracted by the motorcycle going on outside. <laughs> nice. Brett and I, note, Brett and I are not riding down the street on our motorcycles recording this show. Not right now, no. No. Um, repeat the question, please. <laughs> What's your thought about secret die rolls? I do think that they should be done. I, I mean, if... I probably don't do them as much as I should, especially when Alex is talking about detecting traps and, and the stuff that the players shouldn't know whether they succeed or fail on based on their result, knowing their result. But yeah. yeah. And I think it does, it does matter game by game. Certain games don't lend itself to that as well, I don't think. No, I agree. I'm reading the Decipher system now. Decipher? Hmm? Oh. Yeah. GM doesn't roll any dice. No, yeah. I don't. Everything's in players' hands. Yeah. yeah. They roll to hit, and then they roll for defense. Okay. Hmm. We'll have to dig into that further. Yeah, I'm getting into more into it, so I don't, I'm not. Not that's mm. that book's in the queue. It's a deep queue. I was going to yeah, say. I've, I've, got, I've, I've seen the pile of shit on the, end of the table <laughs> oh, here, God. Alex, and uh, it's going to take you. I would love to, to read Cipher, but yeah, I don't know when I'm going to get to it. I've got yeah. A bunch I'll of give stuff. you the. Hundred foot view. And that then, would be fantastic. Can, that's it's the classic. You know that same with all those board games I mentioned. I've played a fraction of them because it's so much more fun to play with someone who actually knows the game and can teach it than having to grind through it yourself. Yeah, yeah. it's just so much work. Then so absolutely, my, I'm fully in favor of your reading it and telling tell me, how me it goes. everything about it. I'll brief you. Yeah. Shall uh, we go right on to it? Yeah. So. You've heard Alex speaking. We've introduced him. We've had him on the show. He's got the green jacket because he's been on here, what, now four or five times now. About mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know who Alex Kammer is, he is a friend of the show and friend of Brett and I. He is also the director of Game Hole Con, which is our sponsor and the big event in November. Um, so get your ass to Game Hole Con. It's a great convention. But not only that, but Alex is an avid, shall I say... Do we border on the line of obsessed? It's, yeah, it's the the question of you know hoarding or collecting is one I, I examine frequently. Well, there was a there was a line I, I can't remember if it's, if it's absolutely true or not, but I had heard at one point that biblio a biblio bibliophilia was the only hobby that was also considered a mental illness at one point in time. <laughs> so that's quite possible. Well, I tell you, I uh, had the good, I've had the good fortune to go visit Ed Greenwood a couple of time and couple of times in his home, and I was just there a couple of weekends ago. Uh, and that makes me feel better about my content. Oh, he has tons of shit. It is unbelievable books and gaming stuff. I mean, just I tons of stuff. Literally in you know weight t- terms. Tons. And, and that's canvas. That's metric tons. That's a lot. That is. Yeah. Is He's lot. got a, a a basically a storage locker out on his lawn that's about the size of a semi trailer, and it's full. Wow. And his house is full. I mean, it's I, I, it would be a lifetime's lifetime project just to. Catalog what he has. He has no idea. Oh you know? my god! <laughs> so anyway, I'm not that bad. So <laughs> so we have Alex on on because we want to talk about collecting. Yeah, Sean and I have talked about uh, old games, stuff that's on my shelf. I've got a copy of every version of Middle Earth role playing because I was a Merp guy when that first came out. When Iron Crown put that out, so I have a copy of every version of that. And I'm slowly but surely picking up different bits and pieces of the Middle Earth of the Middle Earth world. Now it's it's a small, much smaller than like. Um, from just a volume than what TSR put out back in the day. 
And one of the things that came to my mind, and I was just up this last weekend, as I said, talking to Evercom with my buddies and doing some planning, is every gamer I know at some point you start collecting stuff because you you can't help it. You you get the bug and you start looking, oh, I like this D&D version. Oh, there's a new D&D version. You, you buy a couple more. Oh, I really want to try this Call of Cthulhu thing. I want to try this Dungeon World. I want to try Cypher System. And you get into it and then you buy a couple supplements or a few add-ons. And <laughs> whether you plan it or not, when you get into gaming, the the collecting bug is out there. Um, and there's different ways to go about it. And as we were talking to Alex before the show, I tend to, I the way my pocketbook works and the way I'm at um, from just what I think I should be able to get away with what my wife will let me do is I tend to look at stuff and say, I'm going to play that or I buy copies that I plan to use. And I know Alex is not like this, but we've all met those collectors of some sort that it's on a shelf, it's behind glass, and no one will ever touch it. It's this beautiful, pristine thing that's practically a museum. And I thought, let's kind of figure out, you know, how did we all get started in collecting stuff? Was Is what I described, is that how we got at it? And uh, what's the purpose of our collection? You know, is it just for completeness? Is it because we're fucking crazy and that's what we got to have? Um, so, Alex, what... Um, when you collect, when you're collecting this stuff, how did you get started in this? Was it less like, Hey, I'm in my forties now. Nostalgia bit me or what happened? No, I mean, this started when I was 12. Uh, and you know, when I bought my first copy of the red box and the hardbound player's handbook, uh, and I've kept them because they, things that mean a lot to me, I keep, uh, and those are you know, things that I keep in addition to a pretty big comic collection and a, uh, first edition, uh, uh, print of uh first printing of a lot of uh, fantasy novels i care a lot about i've had them forever and add to them and i think the people who really uh are avid collectors you have to you know there's the the venn diagrams of what kind of nerd you are yeah you mentioned completionist if you're a completionist that's the that's really the the uh the engine that makes collectors go you know you have one module in a series and you want all the modules or you have there's a limited series of a certain comic book and you have the first one well you're going to get all of them and it just is it's a, it's it's not at least for me it's not compulsive in some sort of illness kind of way but i really do want them and it just makes me it makes me feel i don't know somehow good or complete to have them all I'll say oh look at this it's a complete set yes that's very nice um you know i don't lose sleep over or anything like that i know some people who are over the edge with with being a completionist. And unfortunately, not. <laughs> I'm not quite that bad. But I well, think if you don't have that, then if then it's, then you can do, then you can do what you're doing, which is sounds so reasonable to me. <laughs> that you you uh, you have what you like. You don't you're not emotionally attached to it. If you're not playing it, out it goes. You sell it. And you use that to fund new stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, also, you know, you cuts down on space. I mean, you're sitting in a really big room. Well, a series of three rooms actually above a pub. And that's enabled me to have as much stuff as I do. If this were at home, you know, you mentioned your wife. Well, this it, would fill your basement. I mean, it, this would fill most basements. Yeah, I mean, the game hole used to be, it's, we're so named because it used to be in my basement. And I had one big wall full of this stuff, but I was running out of space. And uh, so when this all happened, we moved, moved the game hole here to its current location. That afforded me a lot more space, and that's been great. And now it's getting crowded up here. So, uh, uh um, so space is certainly a constraint, but yes, I guess to get to what you asked me originally, I didn't answer your question. What got me started? Uh, it was the loving D and D and being nostalgic about it as a kid, and then picking up again uh, shortly after I got done with all the schooling, uh, and then I started. I just kept stuff, and then I've swung back and completed those runs. I guess I do know what you mean from a completionist perspective. I mean, I can't imagine my bookshelf having like a copy of The Hobbit. In Fellowship of the Ring, and not the rest of them. I I can't see that being up there without my copy of the Children of Hurin sitting next to it. It, it doesn't it, it doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to have as many of those as I am a Tolkien guy, so I want to make sure I've got the the what I consider the key books are all there and they're all together on a shelf. Now, Sean, you you call me a hoarder uh, off the off the mic. I did not. I did <laughs> no such thing, man. So, do you collect anything, man? I mean, you used to have a lot, but you've been paring yourself way down. Yeah, I don't. I, as far as RPGs go, I don't. I don't collect anything specific. There, I do have some of the old first edition AD and D stuff, but it, they're they're not in collectible condition, and I don't. So, I think that that's an interesting point. Is that condition? If you're a, you know, if you're a guy like Alex with a with a goal to collect a certain thing in a certain condition, as you are with some of the shrink wrap stuff, we'll talk about. But having this stuff, see, a lot of my things aren't necessarily in collectible condition either. I have a white box; it's playable condition. It's not anything I would 
say is worth a ton of money or whatever it is. I have all the old uh, traveler box of uh, the box that traveler came in and all the different pamphlet size ones. They're not well, a lot of people would say with collector grade or something along those lines. They're beat up, but I love them be, and I can use them. So you, I guess you de- it depends on how you define collect, like collecting. You can collect for like the 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 rarity. You can collect for the set and quant- completion. Mm-hmm. You can collect for um, the condition, or you want a good, decent condition. I mean, there's some some. I mean, top secret. You got like two sets now. Yes, I have two sets of Top Secret. Thanks, yep. Misdirected Mark. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, what you know, which one's better and does that matter which one you keep? Yeah, it does. It does, right? <laughs> yeah. So. I go through it. I've got the, the one with the best box and the best books inside of it, and the most the most complete version that's in the best shape is the one I want to hang on to. Have you, repl- Alex, have you replaced ones that you've had that have been beat up with better ones? No, uh, because, well, I've I've... Replace implies that I've gotten rid of the one that <laughs> exactly. that, that has not happened. Uh, well, as 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 I've gone through the the last couple of years, and I find a better copy of my collector's copy, I usually take the copy that I don't need it for a collector's copy anymore, and I donate it to the uh, GM Rewards pool for GameholeCon. Okay, uh, so there's been some pretty awesome stuff that showed up in there you know <laughs> like oh this dragon magazine number five you know that's <laughs> that's kind of nuts that that's in the gm award pool but uh so uh i have replacements but not my original i mean i can i can my eyes can see my player's handbook up there that i bought from value village in portage wisconsin you know and it has my looping alex k signature in it <laughs> uh so I'll, i've always kept that one but so you, uh, but you have play copies i have play copies and that's why you know i've that i've Shown a picture of my hardbounds, and they just say, "You hoarder, you're keeping us from." And there's a reason I had all those copies. It's because we played, and so everyone was so we didn't have to fight for books. And that's, uh, but now you can see if you look at that shelf, there's it's not just grade; it's also the printing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you'll see some up there that are in plastic, and those are first prints. You know, or it, it gets complicated for the for the DM's guide, for example, and some of the others. There's the first alpha and second alpha. You know, there's a lot to the. Well, something as simple as the old deities and demigods. There was the one with the Malevene um, and Cthulhu mythos mm-hmm. in it. The certain print runs, then that all fell off. Well, so there were the first two prints yep. had those. One just had them. The second print had a thank you for allowing us to do this, and That's the third right. they dropped off. So those are three distinct printings. And actually, I'm, I'm going to do this from memory, I think there's seven printings of the DMs, of the of, uh, of uh, Deities and Demigods, which uh, eventually became Legends and Lore, uh, you know, up there. And so, uh, you know, like a monster manual. Well, so it takes, for make, what's, what's collectible, really? And it's weird shit <laughs> that is very limited. TSR was great about doing that because they screwed stuff up all the time. I mean, there's all kinds of mistakes with their printing. They <laughs> sure. created collectibles. That's they true. Dating, I, I they didn't a, do so on purpose. I have but. an old coloring book from them that's in incredible condition, and I got it for a song, and the guy sold it. He's like, well, it's it's screwed up. Well, it is. It's all fucked up. So one of the pages, I mean, it's pages repeat. One of them, I think, is upside down or backwards. Yeah. And, but it's in great shape, and it's, again, a fuck up that's out there somewhere. Yeah. This is And it's different than back in the day when I collected comic books in college when everyone was putting out the collector's edition, yeah. which they, you know, at the time, Marvel and the guys, Eric, uh, Eric Lightfield and those dudes, they were essentially printing money because no one realized that you have to wait like a, a thousand years before comic books are really valuable. Yeah. But know, I used to buy one comic to read and one to put in a bag. So it's kind of the same approach. I, I can give you several examples from TSR that <laughs> where they unwittingly made massive collectibles. One is a DM's guide. I think I'm going to do this from memory. I can pull up the site that would instruct me, but I think it's the second alpha printing. And the the printer screwed up and stitched in a bunch of pages of the monster manual in the DM's guide. And huh. there are very few of them because most of them were caught and destroyed. Okay. I, I have a buddy who has one. I don't have one of those. That's one of the few of those oddballs I don't have. You were, you, uh, were looking earlier at my... Um, Orange B3, the Palace of the Silver Princess. That was uh, originally when it rolled out as an orange cover, and there was some art in there that lampooned the TSR staff. So they put a kibosh on it, and they f- attempted to throw them away. But someone, and this, this is all very apocryphal information now as to you know how many are actually out there, how many were actually saved. Uh, okay. But they're very rare, uh, and one, a shrink wrap copy just was up on a collection site this week and it was sold for three thousand uh, dollars you know i've got one in shrink and one not in shrink uh and i've 
you know, I know people, other people who have them, but as to how many of them are actually out there, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, the really rare stuff, and I've I've got a friend who's probably the foremost, no, not probably, is the foremost collector, and he's in the Chicago area. He has a bunch of the original manuscripts from modules that were turned into Gary, you know, like the Slaver series, you know, handwritten, and he's got those wow. in, in uh, manila envelopes. Um, and, and, uh, brown boxes and white boxes played by that were the personal copies of X designer. I mean, those are real rarities, rares and those, you know, and he's got, he's, you know, he's been doing this forever and he's got an unbelievable collection. Uh, I've got a lot of rares, but mine are not one rare, you know, I've got, you know, old brown boxes and, you know, three up. copies of dragon number one. Well, yes. And, but that's, those aren't the only three copies. Exactly. There's, a bunch of them not, out there. Yeah. They're, 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 they're not unique. You know, another one that's rare is up the garden path. You can see that one. It's S T E one. It's a really weird module. It's a terrible module. In fact, it's not very good. Um, but it was written, it was done by TSR, uh, UK and they released the damn thing in a garden show in the UK. And guess yes, what? Yes. I did? remember hearing yeah, about that. And this, it didn't yeah. sell, of course. So they threw most of them away. So that, now that became an extremely rare. It's not a very good product, but it's extremely but rare. Because they released it in a weird condition. They threw out 90% of them. There's only so many left on yeah. the planet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so from a, I want to stop you for a second. So yeah. from a focus perspective, we're talking about a lot of D&D here, which is, I love my D&D. Do you have, is D&D the focus of your collection? It is. It is? Okay. It is. I have a lot of other stuff, uh, but, you know, the other other more modern publishers are were better at their job. Yeah, you that's know? true. I mean, so now really the rares in Call of Cthulhu, we talked about that a little bit, were they designed them to be rare. There were limited release leatherette copies and stuff like that. So they're not that uber rare because they didn't have three of them. You know, they produced 500 of them or whatever that number is. So, you know, uh, if you're going to get a complete run of Vault Traveler, for example, you know, I have a friend who's got a complete run of Traveler and it's very doable. You know, those are all 20 to $50 things. And, you know, if you're patient, you can plunk, plunk along and get them and get them in good shape. And because again, they didn't, they, they didn't do the goofy stuff that, those knuckleheads in, in Lake Geneva did, you know, or <laughs> throwing stuff away and you know, gosh. So so with the focus it. with the focus on on D D, is it TSR era D D? Do you bleed into the Wizards of the Coast portion of it, or is it like just first and second ed? Yeah, I don't go because that's the even second E as you guys remember, uh, there was a lot of splatting that happened. There was a there. fuck ton of that stuff. I mean, yeah, were, yeah. So, you couldn't, throw a dead cat without hitting splat book yeah I, you know so i have a, a lot of that stuff you know i'm 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 complete on a lot of those worlds but i don't have a quite so I, i'm trying to get sh complete sets of shrink wrap of all those things and i'm close on planescape i'm close on ravenloft um hollow world i have um i didn't i don't have any alkadeem i'm close on um spell jammer so you know i i cut off right around the mid 90s or so you know, because once the at that point, once uh, once Peter bought it, and that's not any reason. It just is. I have to have a stopping point. You know, and so that's that's kind of where I have some stuff after that, but I I don't collect it, and I'm not you know trying to be uh, complete about it. So when <clears throat> so that kind of answers my other question is so done for you is that early '90s mm -hmm. everything before that having a copy and then. Yeah, well, in, certain, in what we would call collectible, you mentioned the shrink wrap thing. That's I know that's a big thing in certain collector markets. Is that like when I uh, I got a hold of a older version of Talisman that was released in the in the eighties? It was original shrink, unpunched, unplayed. Which was really cool. I of course brought it home, tore it open, punched it all out, and I play it. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> but so when you're getting stuff in the original shrink, you also have a playable copy next to it, right? Yeah. If you look at my shelf to to the to the right here, you can see all those box sets. And you can see, first of all, starting on the far left is the first D&D uh, box set. Uh, two of those are in shrink and one is not. And then we go to the Holmes version of the basic, you know, the same, mm. one shrink, one not. And then through the uh, red box uh, and then the, uh, the the five basic boxes, the Frank's, Frank's series, same thing in Forgotten Realms. And all the way through, that's why all those box sets, there are two of them because I've got one in shrink and one not in shrink to be, to be used. Uh, so... Yeah, you know, and the other, uh, I guess, where we talked about my stopping point on the more recent time, I also don't go into the, tr the you know, the really way back for D&D. &D. I mean, people who are really into OD&D, &D, I have 
uh, a couple of brown boxes and white boxes and so on. But you can get into the you know internal newsletters that TSR did, uh, the Domesday books, um, chain mail, oh, yeah, yeah. all okay. that stuff. You know, and I have a couple copies of those things. But you know, That's I'm not. not your sweet no, spot. it's not because I wasn't playing that. I got it. You know, so this is it's very personal for me. This is the time when I played the most, uh, and I played even when I came back to D anD D. When people were playing three point five, we were still playing one e because that was my system, and we played that. I remember being at Gen Con when it moved in, to indie, and we're sitting in a in a when they still had open play space, <laughs> and we we're playing. And I had my first edition DMs uh, DM screen up, and we're playing, uh, and people would say, "You play one e still?" And you know, because three five had just come out, yeah. and that was the bees knees, right? So uh, you know, that's so that stuff really means a lot to me. Those modules, especially the modules, I'm really, I really have it hard for the first edition modules because that was just magic to me when I was a kid. I'd pick one up and think, "Oh man, this is a thing, man. This is an adventure. This can take you someplace." You know, it was just so that's why I'm on this vision quest because it's dumb uh, to <laughs> to have them all and shrink because I want a perfect copy of all of them. One complete set of all the AD&D shrink modules and I'm very close to being getting that accomplished. What do you um, like, five away? Yeah, five away. Five away and they're not uh, the hard ones, most of the hard ones I have. So they'll, I'll get them. Out of how, 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 how many? Five out of how many? Oh, gosh. Um, do you know? I don't, I should, you know, I should look at that exact number but I bet there are um, right around 250. 250? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I bet. Something like that. So yeah. talking about the procuring of it, and you mentioned this, that there's groups of, of collectors that are hardcore, right? I mm-hmm. happen to have, because I've got like two Call of Cthulhu things that you don't have. We were just talking about that. Mm-hmm. I've got a, one copy in German. I don't read German. I just happened to get it. It was a great deal at the time. And I've got a green leatherette version, which is numbered out of like 13 out of 300, which is really cool for me. Um, however, so when you're looking at, and you're much more focused, I'm grabbing different bits and pieces of my history that I like to collect. So what has so I guess when you get into this and you're really going hard on it, I'm assuming eBay is you're not getting everything off eBay. You're not going to Gen Con and grabbing everything. How the hell are you finding some of these treasures? I mean, do we hear stories about oh Frank's got lockers full of stuff. Frank Messer or this yeah. person that's, has that's true by the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you hear these stories that oh the old timers all have this stuff squirreled away or hidden. <clears throat> My assumption is that that's not the case, and that no. so how the hell are you finding this stuff? Yeah, first of all. Those old timers you talk about are all personal friends of mine. They're through Gamehole Con and they're great guys. Uh, what happened was for them, for their stuff, their stash, their mythical stashes, um, this stuff became valuable and they turned it into cash. Uh, most of it a long time ago. Not a long time ago, but 10, 15 years ago. And well, now, when well, you're a game designer and that was your career for a long time yeah. and that's dried up, yeah. there's a retirement fund. If you got it sitting next to you in a, in a locker, why wouldn't you liquidate? Yeah, yeah. So I guess so for collection, how to get it done? I think first is. Figure out what it is you want. What is your, what is your your set your set your limits? You know, I'm going to collect uh, this game in between this time period. First of all, and uh, that that helps in a lot of ways. It it focuses your searching, and it also will limit your the uh, your your economic exposure. You know, uh, it can be if you're just grabbing. Uh, it's it's can get really expensive and I can and say just to jump in for a second. I actually did that a couple of Gen Cons ago. I started the collecting bug really hit me hard, and I got a white box. And at that Gen Con, I dumped what to me was an obscene amount of money, and I got a ton of really cool stuff. It was in great prices, great deals, and so last year at Gamehole Con, I liquidated a bunch of it because I looked up and said, why do I have three copies of Powers and Perils? What the fuck do I need that for? The deal was good at the time. Like, I don't need this. I, this has no nostalgia value to me. I just kind of got on a rampage. So I think your advice is dead on in that if you stay focused, you're going to be able to... I, I could have spent my money more wisely now knowing what I really want to collect... I, I should have been able, I would have been able to pick up more and better of the things I actually care about as opposed to, look at me, I have some cool stuff that has no real personal value to me. Yeah, and as far as where the stuff, you you mentioned eBay, that's one. Um, there are uh, auctions at conventions. Gen Con is a, a rares auction on, on Saturday night that yes. this group of 15 of us are all sitting around looking at each other like, oh, here, here we go, you know, and, and we, but we're all decent, you know, we're all, we all know what the, what each of us want and for the most part, stay out of each other's way. You know, for example, if one of my five shrinks comes up, those they better get the fuck out of my way because I, it's you know, there's Alex will I, cut a guy. I, Alex I, will cut a guy. I will not be outbid, you know, when it comes to that because it's just I'm so close now, and so, and they know that. And and when it came to, you know, I remember last no two years ago, my friend who's got all the great 
the white box collection and, and brown box collection, it was, uh, gosh, whose box was it? It was one of the original designers put it up, and no one, none of us bid against him. You know, oh, just let him have right. it because he had – you know, we're all trying to preserve stuff too. This all means a lot to us. We want these collections. Who's got? Who's really got the best of X? We want that person to keep getting that stuff, so it stays there. Uh, and so, another place where I've get, gotten a lot of stuff are my fellow collectors. Um, that they have stuff and they uh, have an extra copy or they know this is something that I really want. Uh, we trade, we, you know, I buy it from them. Uh, so between, you know, traditional eBay and now where there's some stuff on, uh, on Facebook, some auction sites, um, auctions at cons and just, the, you know, being friends with all these collectors. That's pretty much how I've gotten most of my stuff in the last 15 years. Very cool. Is there, I had another question I was going to ask you. So <clears throat> what has been, what was the hardest item for you to find and procure have you have you found that one i mean we, we know we've got five left right mm-hmm. and you hinted that some of the other ones you have are, are supposedly more rare have you so i guess what was the hardest thing for you to find so far yeah and what did you th- and the follow-up of course is what did you think would be a complete bitch it just fell in your lap if, if such a thing happened yeah uh, the the five that i'm still missing just i just haven't found them and they're not particular you know that'll happen sooner or later i mean like one of them is N5 under Illifarn. I mean, that's not a particularly rare module. It's, you know. I but you want it to shrink. A yeah, yeah it'll, it'll happen one of these days. You know, one one to your, to fell in my lap. I was missing a B, uh, I think it was um, B11. I think that's King's Festival, if I'm recalling correctly. Maybe it's B12. I can't remember. But that's the one B I didn't have. And I just, it was about two weeks ago. I just said, eh, let's do a quick eBay search. And bang, there it was. <laughs> and I'm like, Jesus, I've been looking for this thing forever. And it's just sitting there. There it is. So, and I buy it now. And there it is. And it showed up. My, I just, you know, so uh, some elaborate, uh, you know, the up the garden path was, that was a, a saga. <laughs> you know, I had to actually, I, my friend Frank Mensner helped me with that. He said he thought he knew a broker in England who might have one or know of someone who had one that wanted to buy it. So this it is like going, buying a Cthulhu artifact at this point. Yeah. I know a guy who might know a guy in another country. Totally. Cross, wow. Yeah. Okay. So it was, it was a, it was a, you know, on faith for me to wire, you know, X pounds. To someone I didn't know. I'm sending real money to a dude I don't know in yep. another country yep. and I hope to God I get a product. Yeah, here it is. Because this is, I mean, I they just don't come up. I have, they just don't. And so I, I uh, bought it and I have it and it came and it was as as advertised in the condition, which was excellent. Um, but that, that was, yeah, yeah, I felt like I was, you know, black market you know, some sort of black market acquisition or something. <laughs> it was pretty crazy. But... <laughs> Men in black at your door, knock, knock, knock. Yeah. Mr. Kramer, I have yeah. to talk to you about this thing. So you're you so that that kind of answers another question I had is you're definitely the search is global. Mm-hmm. I mean when you I mean eBay itself is big, but when you're talking about those private collections and other areas, have you are you buying stuff out of like Asia, Europe, all over the place? Or is it mostly North America? I'm just out of curiosity's sake. Yeah, no, it's Europe and North America for the most part. I've okay. gotten you know and and well, I guess Canada of course, but the, there are a lot of a lot of uh, good uh, good collectors there and. A lot of, especially the shrink stuff, because you know you, what you what you described. You get a shrink, a mint shrink something, and you say, "Awesome, let's tear it open." Um, that didn't. There were the, the countries that didn't sell as well have stock. You know, that's sitting somewhere. Some game store went out of business. Some someone grabbed a lot of it, a bunch of it, and uh, here and there. You know, I I have a, this guy in Nova Scotia. Is, I've got a, several coming from him. He had this big. I mean, he had a huge list of these things. He must have had, must have bought it out of store, out of going out of business game store or something like okay. that. So that's what has brought the number down from like twelve to five in one shot. He had a bunch of stuff that I didn't that I needed, and that was ex- extremely fortuitous. And uh, so, yeah, no, wherever, wherever, I guess. Um, just I, I don't collect foreign language. Okay. So, but if I was you say there's there's got to be even within that even within that space, we talked about this before we got on the mics. Is you can get, I think, got D&D was putting a, especially basic D&D, how many different languages, oh. and that's not a thing for you. No, no. Okay. It's just, I, I have friends who do that, and it's really interesting watching them, <laughs> you know, acquiring Japanese and Yiddish Oof. copies of these things at these at these auctions. And I'm just thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I don't have that. <laughs> I, just, it's just, I know I have a problem, but yeah. I'm not as bad as you are. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I, yeah, I just, so, so I just, that's again my limitation. I uh, don't, uh, Occasionally, when especially on the uh, eBay, excuse me, the um, Facebook auction sites, someone will post a shrink copy of some foreign edition thing, and I'll get tagged on it. So this, oh, Alex could be all over this. I said, nope, nope, not, not for my me. thing. I'm not my. That's not my bag. So once you're done, I guess, do you have once this is all done? 
Hmm. And you're an old gamer in a retirement home. What do you see your collection? What do you see? Is this is this a legacy for the kids? Is this a legacy for what do you plan to do with it when you're all done? I haven't really figured that out, but uh, that's a, that's a question. No, no, that's <laughs> my a, wife that, asked me the same thing. No, mine's, mine's a quarter of your size. <clears throat> no, it's a it's a good question. Uh, I if. My kids are young still, so I don't know what if they're going to have interest, and not just interest, real interest. They'd have to be really interested to for me to say, all right, here you go. Um, this is not something that should just be sold. Um, what I'd like to do, if that's not the case, I'd like to endow a museum. Uh, I would like to say, here is my set, an entire shrink-wrapped set from, well, everything that was shrink-wrapped. A lot of stuff wasn't. That's the original true. OD&D stuff wasn't. That's so right. I have everything, let's put it this way, everything is shrink-wrappable. I have, for example, the uh, R modules, R one, two, and three were shrink wrapped. R four, Doc, Doc's Island was not. You know, just huh. there's stuff like that. That so everything that did come in shrink wrap, I have in shrink wrap. Uh, so that would be. I'd love to have that go someplace where people can see it. You know, and and preserve but it. Just appreciate it. For yeah, you. I'm gonna keep it. I'm you know. In reasonably good health and a young man, so uh, <laughs> hopefully I'm going to be able to hang on to it for a few, you know, a few more decades. But uh, the uh, 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 ultimately, that's what I'd like to see if my kids don't have keen interest on it. Sean, anything? I've been I've been playing him with questions here. You, no, you're still at all. Somebody has. This I could sit stuff? here and listen to Alex for a while for sure <laughs> and ask him all kinds of questions, but. Um, it's just something to behold because you got. I mean, well, and Alex has the biggest collection I've seen. Yeah. It's, the other, um, so the other question I have for you, I know you're playing a lot of five E right now. Mm-hmm. If you had your choice, what is your? I mean, we're talking D and D. What's your favorite edition of D and D? If you were going to play one, you know, and you, you know, everybody, your gamers are going to sign in. What, what, what do you want to play? What do you want to run? Do you have a favorite? Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a. See, one E and two E people get. Uh, there's not a real big distinction there for me. 2E supplemented 1E, in my opinion, and improved a few things, cleaned up some wonk, and I really love 1E. So 1E and 2E, I'm going to consider that one set. And then 5E, those are my two games. Uh, I really like 5E. I think it play, it's an old-school game. It plays like an old-school game. Uh, and so right now I'm playing 5E, but I can tell you the page number where the on the DM's guide where the two-hit table is. You know, I can tell you the non-weapons proficiency bonuses and, and penalties and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's... Uh, I played so much of it. So those are my two. I three five. I played for a little while. Pathfinder. I played for a little while. Meh. Four four e. I didn't play at all. Um, so yeah, it's one e two e and five e. And I don't see them as being really that. Gosh, I know that there's a lot of flame wars about this online, but they're just. I, I I'm completely comfortable both well, I figure when, side when, by side. When I, just, I, I somebody asked that Greenwood at the first game hole I was at game hole two, asked that I think that was the first one he went to. And someone asked him, you know, what are you playing right now? And he talked about how his group votes and they do that thing. And he says they basically play second edition with second edition with some first edition stuff piled onto it. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> when Ed Greenwood says they're essentially the same thing for his realms. So the other question from a, a ruling perspective is with all the different worlds you've got, are you a realms guy, a Greyhawk guy, Hollow Earth, something birthright? What what's the what's your favorite? published setting yeah my favorite published setting is 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 the forgotten realms that's the one where i uh played a lot and i love greyhawk too but forgotten realms was more complete for me i mean and the the all the uh volos guides and these box sets with richness about you know you could step into these cities and they're real places you know like cafe names and shit like that i mean it's crazy greyhawk was a great concept it just never got to uh that granular, and I like the granularity of the Forgotten Realms. I mean, I like the detail, of the maps, and the how you know the the regional differences. The uh, uh, Greyhawk was more you know classically um, you know baronies and stuff like that. It was more uh, medieval in its as a setting. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, classically medieval, and that's cool too. And I you know a lot, a lot of the stuff I have is set there. I'm very comfortable. I mean, I know the Greyhawk very well. I guess the uh, for me the Forgotten Realms always seemed like a more real place to me. Okay. And mm. I, you know the other stuff. I mean, I the uh, you know Eberron, um, Planescape. Uh, those are all cool, and I like when you know, some of the guys, the game hole guys, they'll run something in those settings, and I think they're neat. I like the you know the rules. I mean, the the concept behind them is cool. It's just not my bag, you okay. know. As far as when, you, when I run a game, uh, it's almost always set in uh, in the Forgotten Realms. Uh, or the you know new setting that we're we're building out as our in our publishing effort, but that's another story for another day. So the other question that I have for you is that from the collecting aspect, other than being complete, having all the real cool stuff, 
I would think that meeting and getting to hang out with guys. Now, it's not like you can't <clears throat> meet Frank Metzer anywhere. He, he's had a ton of games and Tim Kask and some of the old school guys. And I mean, I've talked to Ed Greenwood, but it feels like when I have been at Gen Con, when I sit in that in the collector's auction and just watching that, watching different groups do different things, you talking to other people about collecting, there's a level of camaraderie that's really kind of cool in that space. There's all this weird ephemeral knowledge people have. Oh, wait. Up, up the garden path. I remember when that, you know, when that first really, did you hear the story about that? And so is there a piece, I mean, that that's a cool part for collecting to me is that kind of inner circle of men and women are really into it. Is that, I mean, I'm not, don't want to say that's the same thing for you, but is that, uh, what other pieces apart from that perhaps makes collecting cool for you? I mean, there's the complete, I've got all this cool shit and look at all this great stuff. Yeah. But is there, well, that's why all of us, you know, when you go to a con and you get to meet, <clears throat> people who created stuff that mean a lot to you, you know, that's a real big part of it. And uh, it's been just fantastic for me as the director of Gamehole Con to not just to get to know these guys, but to be good friends with them and to, you know, I'm a, a, by day a lawyer and I've been able to help some of them out with a few things. And, uh, and you know, that the, if these are true friendships that are built. That means a lot to me. Um, and so I've learned a lot from them, too, as far as the lore of the stuff, Mac, and that's why I know about the B3 stuff and up the garden path. I mean, I've learned that directly from truly the horse's mouths, you know, and you know, Ed Greenwood, again, is, I've seen, you know, that guy has a bin, uh, like a, 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 a probably a, a two, three-foot-long, two-foot-wide, maybe ten inches deep. It's the kind of thing that you'd buy at a department store to put your sweaters in. Oh, yeah, off-season kind of clothing, stick it yeah, under the bed. Yeah, slide under the bed. This is under the bed. It's under the bed, okay. He has, <laughs> he has in this bin his original hand-drawn maps of Baldur's Gate. He oh. drew those, and he photocopied, went down to the library in, in, in Ontario, photocopied them, and mailed them a photocopy to uh, Lake Geneva, to TSR back in the day. And he has the originals, and they're sitting in a frickin' bin under his bed. That's you know, awesome. that's, see, that's the kind of thing that makes me quiver with, you know, like, I would so love to have that, you know, um, because that's, again, my favorite setting, you know, one of my favorite people in the world that created it, uh, and I'm glad that he's keeping it, you know, of course. Uh, and I have a, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not, there are lots of people who have uh, more original stuff than I do, but I've got a couple of things, you know, like the... Uh, You've got that original Greyhawk painted map that you have at every game hole. I have that, that one. That thing's awesome. That's pretty cool. And then I also have um, the uh, map that uh, Larry Schick and Moldvoy created when they were in college, which became the uh, Gazetteers and um, Mysteria. Oh, setting. okay. So I have that. It's in the back room and a couple doors down here. And that's uh, it's something that they literally... Created in college, and I have that. I got to see that when we're done. Yeah, I gotta see that. it's, it's <laughs> That's cool. Really cool. I mean, you can see if you if you know what the gazetteers are. Yes, you will see those written out in this map. You know, you know one of those guys hand drew them in. Oh wow! That's so wonderful. it's a probably a three by six framed map that's back there. So that's an original. You know, Larry Lorenschick was nice enough to write me a, a certificate of authenticity, and it's framed next to it to describe what that was, what they were doing, and what 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 it be, what became of it. You know, so yeah, um, those kind of things are, uh, uh, you know, and the real heavyweights in this field, the real money is in art. You know, the the, the yeah, the art. original Larry Elmore, the original. Um, well, I was gonna say, um, what's his name? The one guy who did Wormy and all those. Who's yeah, I Tramp. Mean, yeah, Trampier and the Otis's <clears throat> and the Jeff D stuff and uh, Diesel's stuff. All that. I mean, there's basically one guy uh, who's gone around and bought probably eighty percent of it, and he has it all. Oh wow! And uh, yeah, and he's—I don't even know—hundreds, many hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, probably quite frankly, seven figures for to for his collection of that stuff. I know oh, it is certainly. It's got to be. I mean, this art is art is never cheap, especially in originals. My God, the the only one that I know that has escaped his clutches uh, is, is, is if you go to Noble Knight in Janesville, Wisconsin, uh, the owner there has the original uh, deities and demigods. It's oh. up on the wall. So Art. he's kept that. Yeah, he, he has that. So it's sitting up there, and uh, I yeah, it's because I know I know it's Aaron Leader's the guy who owns the store, and he's uh, he won't uh, sell it <clears throat> unless the uh, as part of the purchase uh, he gets a round of golf at Augusta. 
<laughs> so 100 grand plus a round of golf at Augusta, and you can have the original uh, TG and Democrats. Sean, I think that's outside our budget. I don't think we can, I don't think we can swing that one. Something to shoot for. <laughs> one, <laughs> that'll, be a pay, that'll be a Patreon level for, our, for the show. <laughs> so one last question before we move on. Yeah, Alex, sure. when, when you get the last five, what are you going to do? Well, uh, I'm going to. There's still five day uh, drunk. Yeah, right. No, no. no. I, I, I still. That's just the. Uh, that's the one. The the AD and D one e stuff. There's still a lot of two e stuff that I'm going to chase around. You know, I'm going to get that. I'm going to finish off Planescape. I'll finish off. You know, Al Kadim. I'll get all that stuff. And you know that that'll be just fun and no pressure or anything. I'll just as it comes. I'll get that stuff. And then as I see uh, other. Uh, better copies of things I already have. I'll swap out and you know you uh, do that kind of stuff. And it's but it's it's nice when you I uh, the 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 majority of the of the expenses is pretty well behind me, which is which is nice because it's been expensive. And that's the other thing you have to really keep in mind is just know what you what you're comfortable spending and don't ever have buyer's remorse about things. Things you know, I said, oh geez, you know that's a that's a mortgage payment right there for this module. Does that make sense really for where I am in my life? You know, and <laughs> if the answer is yes, then great. Um, and uh, you know, it took me a while till I get to the till I got to the point in life when that was the answer. But it's certainly not for everyone. And uh, you know, uh, you don't need to add additional stress in your life by buying things you really shouldn't be. <laughs> good, I think, good I think that one of the cool, apart from that, one of the other cool things I I, I like about. When I met you, Alex, and saw the collection, I'm like, this is a gamer who loves this stuff and loves to show it off. And it's not that I'm saving these because in 20 years I'll be a, a gazillionaire or something crazy. <clears throat> you don't har- you don't seem to harbor those delusions that at some point it'll all be worth a gazillion dollars. I mean, it's it's worth money, obviously, oh. yes, but no, it's not. That's an, not that's not the driving force. It's not an investment. It. It's not an investment in my. This is this is a one way trip when it comes to the game. Well, you know, it's 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 coming here to stay. And and I also am not weird about people coming to if they ever want to see my collection. Just look me up, and I'm happy to bring people up here to look at stuff. Uh, you can, uh, you know, I, I don't mind taking things out of the bag, and if you want to hold a B3, uh, that's fine. You know, it's, it's. I'm not worried about that. It's. These it does make are... me wipe the chocolate off my finger. <laughs> yeah, no, no chocolate yeah. and uh, no to, cigars. Yeah. Go to Culver's. And yeah. get some Culver's chocolate. get nice yeah. and greasy. Yeah, exactly. Here, grab this. But you know, these because game the game materials, you they're meant to be played and enjoyed. They're not. Uh, you know, while you want to do your best to preserve them, uh, at the same time, I don't, I don't want to be weird about it. So, uh, you know. This is. I'm a gamer. At the end of the day, I'm not a. I'm not a collector first. I'm a gamer first that collects, not a collector who occasionally games. And there are a lot of those out there. Yeah, no, that's, there are a lot that's of collectors who who have never opened the things that they bought, uh, and uh, are looking to flip at some time down the road. You know, but that's cool. It's just not me. Got it. Anything else, Sean? No, uh, thanks so much, Alex. That was cool, man. Thank uh, you. Oh, sure. Very much. And if you, I'm, I'm no kidding. If you get a chance, you come to Gamehole Con. We are in the Madison area, and you wanna you wanna see what Alex had. It is very very impressive, and it's really cool to see, not only from the nostalgia perspective, but he has stuff here that I didn't know existed, and just going through that, I go, oh my god, they made this. This is it. It's really really cool. It's well, just a load of cool I stuff. Appreciate that. All right, let's get into die roll. All right, so die roll, we basically just have a couple different uh, here, two to four topics of miscellaneous gaming and geekery. We want to share the one of them is we'll have a link in the show notes. There is a severe drought in Mexico. And it's causing the water to drop, mm. and these ancient churches are essentially rising from the dead. There's these old churches and reservoirs and things that have been flooded that are popping up. And if, you, if you're a gamer and you read that and you don't get an idea for an adventure, check your pulse, man, because that's just awesome. The other one I had was, <laughs> apparently this has been going on for a while. Friends of mine knew about this. Somebody is taking meat, raw meat, duct taping it to knives, and then stabbing these knives into trees, and then leaving them there, and people find them. And of course, this freaks out. The locals, that someone is randomly stabbing meat into a tree. Now that's I, not not you, bro. No, it's not, not in the absolutely. not in the Richland it's Center. Not in the Richland Center area. Okay, no, not at all. I, I would sure. not waste good meat by doing this anyway. That's right. The other. So <laughs> again, if you're a gamer and you read this, you're like, "That's first off fucked up, weird. Why are you doing this in weird performance art thing?" But if you call a Cthulhu guy back in my vampire days, this is something some crazy cultist would do. This is something that's connected to something like that. I mean, well, you that, read this, it's just... it's That's probably what's happening. I would assume so. Pretty soon there will be a Hellmouth open wherever this is happening, and that'll be the end of it. Yeah. But hey, it's been a good ride. Yeah, so exactly. All right, Sean, what do you got? All right, for mine, Matt Jackson, a collection of presentations cart- cartographical... In nature, a collection of maps provided by, by patron. Oh my goodness! Provided to patrons, uh, he's released it for free. So it's uh, I don't know if it's like twenty pages, but it's a a format that you can download off of his website. We'll have a link in the show notes. 
Matt Jackson is quite uh, active on Google Plus. He's a gamer. He does maps, and um, he has a Patreon if you'd like to uh, kick in for that, uh, by all means, and follow him on Google Plus. Uh, so that's pretty cool to have. And then number two, Map Tools 1.4.0.3 has been released. Um, we'll have a link to the download page for that new release. Obviously, it probably fixes a bunch of bugs. So if you're in the market for a free virtual tabletop, I used to use Map Tools in the day. It's uh, Java-based, and you can modify it if you uh, fancy yourself getting in there with some. It's not, uh, I don't know if it's based on a specific language necessarily, but you can create a lot of robust macros. It just takes a little bit of time. But in the days of the virtual tabletop, it is another option that you have out there. So yeah, check those out. Awesome. Oh, we do have one. Uh, listeners, uh, both Ben Wilson and Joe Swick pointed this out to me. Uh, Matthew Coville has a really cool YouTube session on D&D. He talks mostly <clears throat> about 5th uh, edition because that's the one he's playing right now. And he it's a really cool web series. He's got, I don't know, God, no, 10 plus YouTube videos out there about why you should run it, how fun it is, and so forth. He's a fast-talking dude, kind of like me, and um, someone joked that he kind of looks like my brother. <laughs> He's got a similar facial build and, and look and whatnot. He's a... Now I know yeah. who you're talking yeah. about. It looks just like Brett <laughs> with like a few more pounds in the yeah, face. He, he just, it's very, very similar. It could oh, be because of scary. But his layout, is it, the way he goes through it is really cool. I watched a bunch of them today, and um, it's one of those things that once my, uh, my little guy, AJ gets a little bit older, he's starting to run games and stuff, I think it'd be really cool for him to watch it. And he, do, he doesn't get into, doesn't curse, doesn't swear as much as you and I or do, but it's, it's, it's a really good informative approach, and I think it's good stuff, and uh, people should take a look at it. That's all we had there from the listeners. Excellent. What are we talking about next week? Next week, we're going to talk about interpreting die rolls. We had a couple people talk about this, and uh, between talking about secrets behind, secret conversations, game screen, secret die rolls, let's talk about some die rolls and what we do with them. You usually just read the dice. Usually. They have numbers on them. Yeah, I know. We're going to get a little pretty, more detail. Sounds like a pretty short episode. <laughs> it could be a very short episode. <laughs> Look at that, Especially 13. if I don't invite these two assholes. What does it mean? This could be a lot better. <laughs> we'll fig- Maybe we'll figure out how to draw it out like an hour and a half. <laughs> I can make this an hour and a half. <laughs> bastards all right all right so uh thanks alex for joining us thanks for sponsoring thanks for putting on game hole thanks for just being an all right awesome dude so uh yeah i can't thank you enough appreciate it yeah um otherwise i want to thank baby dan from canada thanks baby dan for the review on pod buzz oh that's right much appreciated um, this show brought to you by patrons like Joe Swick, Kevin Lovecraft, Steve Day, Old School DM, Christian Sexy Voice Serrano, Jeff Rademacher, Forrest Aguirre, Misdirected Mark, Brett's Biggest Fan, Mark Anthony Benedetti, Tony Baker, Palladian, Corey Wynn, <gasps> Bruce Cunnington, Eric Jeppesen, Andy Hall, Sean Nicholson, Tim Jensen, Chris Steele, and the Knights of the Night crew. Consider becoming a patron of the show at GamingNBS.com forward slash Patreon. Otherwise, I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. Good night. Good gaming.